Morning, Mountain. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, usually spend my Sundays over at the Bel Air campus. Greetings to all those guys over there and everyone over at the Edgewood campus. Uh, it's good to be together here on Super Bowl Sunday, right? So, got a big game coming up in a little while, and I got to say, um, this is a bit of a tradition, and I heard from Ben, and he, our senior pastor, Ben Kacharis, he feels like the Lord has once again given him a word about uh, who's going to win between the Seahawks and the Broncos. So I'm just going to tell you guys, because I know you're waiting to hear this. So um, he said he was walking his car, he dropped his Bible, and it fell open to Leviticus 11, and his eyes went right to verse 13, which says, These are the birds you are to detest, because they are detestable. The eagle, the vulture, any kind of raven, the owl, the gull, and any kind of hawk. So apparently God hates Seahawks. So I don't know. So he said, God, I need, uh, gotta give me a little more. So he said the wind kind of ruffled the page of his Bible and it turned to Revelation 19:11, which says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. So that's Jesus on a Bronco, I think. And uh, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, which is maybe the whole Broncos team. I don't know. And Ben was like, you know, help my unbelief, because he was kind of leaning toward the Seahawks, and, and he says, God, I just, I need a little more proof. And he said, he saw uh, Jeremiah 4.13, which says, look, he advances like the clouds, his chariots come like a whirlwind, his horses are swifter than hawks. Woe to us, we are doomed. So, apparently, there you go, right there. Uh, ben says that the Lord says that the, that the Broncos will beat the Seahawks. So, I don't know. Um... <laughs> So the Super Bowl, is, it's like a huge deal, right? It's this big deal in our culture. It's almost like a national holiday. And uh, I wanted to say a couple more words on that at the beginning here. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, have you ever, you know the word juke, J-U-K-E? It's like you're going hard and fast in one direction. And you change directions quickly uh, and at the last second, and you, you, send, you, know, you fool the defender, right? So a lot of that's going to go on in this game. And also, I was just thinking, we need to be thinking about some, some of the juking that's going to be going on in our lives. Like, for example, uh, advertising is a big part of the Super Bowl. And a lot of what advertising tries to do is kind of juke us, kind of trick us, kind of get us riled up about one thing and then change directions and atta- attach it to some product or whatever, uh, you know, sex appeal or whatever. And they, and they say, you, convince you that there's something that you just got to have that you need. Uh, you got to buy this new product or whatever. And I just wanted to say, you know, beware of that. And uh, close your eyes in the GoDaddy commercials or whatever you need to do because we talked about purity and that's important. And we just want to be uh, people who are in the culture and out there with all of our friends, but also who are, who are trying to be like Jesus, who, who was there at the Super Bowl parties of his day with tax collectors and prostitutes and the whole deal, but he somehow also remained pure. And that's something for us to think about. And so also I was thinking about, uh, have you ever heard of the Jesus juke? Okay, this is kind of a term uh, coined by John Acuff. He's a Christian comedian guy. A writer, he says there's a thing called the Jesus juke, which is when well-meaning Christian people take conversations that are they're just supposed to be funny and lighthearted, and then they immediately make them turn, take this hard turn toward very serious, holy things. And uh, so, like, for example, you're at the Super Bowl party, and your buddy walks up to you and says, like, hey, you know, man, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Super Sunday, you know, we're all together. And you, and you say, yeah, man, I'm really glad I'm here too, though. Though, for me, Super Sunday would be Easter, the day of the resurrection of our Lord. And your buddy's like, well, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to go get some nachos and never talk to you again. And, and so or it's like some, you're watching the game, somebody gets hurt, and you know, there's an injury, and somebody says, ooh, that looks like it hurt. And you say to the whole room, 
Yeah, I bet that did hurt, but probably not as bad as when they nailed Jesus to the cross for our sins. <laughs> so, like, don't be that guy. Don't be the Jesus juke person. Because here's why. Because that brings shame. Acuff calls them shame grenades. And it, it never leads to good conversation to do that. And, and nobody's ever been juked or guilt-tripped into the kingdom of God. So we want to be like Jesus, who's described as being full of grace and truth. And, and, and we just want to use this opportunity to be out there with our friends and neighbors and the 187,000 people in Hartford County who don't have a meaningful connection to the church. So here's the deal. Love your neighbor, stay pure, no Jesus jukes, and enjoy the game. Okay, sound good? All right, sounds good. Okay, now, speaking of awesome opportunities, uh, this has been awesome, hasn't it? The story, this journey we've been on together. Um, this book, we've been reading through it as a whole church and talking about it on the weekends and in our groups. And just, uh, you know, it's been, it's someone who's taken uh, scripture straight from the Bible and put a whole bunch of it in chronological order, allowing us to read the Bible kind of like a novel. And along the way, we've been discovering where we fit in. Like, we've been seeing how our temptations and our trials and our hopes and our dreams and fears, and they line up with those same things from God's people from centuries before. That's been really cool. And, and that groups piece is a big piece of this. And I just wanted to mention real quick, uh, when we say get in a group, circle up with some friends, talk about this beyond what we do in these large gatherings, that's not just because it's a program or, or, or we get paid extra if you go to a small group or something like that. It's, it's, it's just the most important tool, one of the most important tools we have for helping us all to grow as disciples and to go deeper and anchor this stuff in. My wife and I, we got in a group at the beginning of the story, and there's a bunch of couples and people that just didn't really even know each other at all, and now we have these great new friends. And So I just want to kind of reinvigorate our, our energy toward that. If you haven't done that yet, go to the Connecting Corner and get plugged into a group and uh, invite some other people to go through this journey with you. Uh, we're about to start the second half, so it's going to be awesome. You know, if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've been around or if you're just here for the first time, this is chapter 17 of 31. And so it's like you tune in, tuning into the game just, just at halftime for the first time, and you're like, you, there's still so much great action ahead. <clears throat> and the best is actually yet to come. And I can tell you, the best is yet to come. So, you know, welcome to everyone. And if you're not plugged in yet, plug in, grab a book, and here we go uh, into the second half of the story. Chapter 17... Uh, covers a lot of scripture, and it kind of gives us a, a strong clue that it's not exactly a feel-good story with its title, The Kingdom's Fall. And we've already seen last week uh, the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and how God's people there uh, lost everything, and they get carted off into exile in Babylon. And so our first stop today is with a guy named Ezekiel, and he's one of those people in exile, and he's one of those prophets that we talked about, God's messengers, and he's there in Babylon, in exile, and God speaks to him. And so in chapter 37 of the book in the Bible that bears his name, uh, chapter 37 of Ezekiel, we see him painting a vivid picture for us as God gives him this message. He says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of dry bones. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Now, whether you've, you've heard that story before or not, I want you to picture that. Go to that place. You know, if the Spirit of the Lord was going to take me somewhere, that's not where I'd want him to take me. But there is Ezekiel, and, and God has him walk around 
with him, follow him through the valley of dry bones, and he's, he's stepping over them, and he's stubbing his toe on them, right? And, and, and how many are there? It says a great many. And what are they like? They're very dry. They've been there for a long time. It reminds me of that, kind of that classic image of a, a cow skull in Death Valley. Right? It's, just, it's just parched. It's just deader than dead. It's, it's, it's this stark kind of disturbing image. And now imagine that, except for instead of one cow, you're talking about many, many people, God's people, Ezekiel's people. For Ezekiel, it might have been reminiscent of something he had experienced marching out from his homeland into exile with the dead bodies of his people all around. So it's the very picture of hopelessness, the valley of dry bones. And I wonder if you have ever experienced hopelessness. And I actually don't have to wonder very much because I I know the answer. I posted earlier this week on my Facebook Uh, I just said, have you ever felt devastated like all hope was lost? Send me a message telling your story briefly. And many of you responded, and some of you kind of ignored that briefly part, but that's all right. (laughs) And here's just a sample of some of the responses I got. A middle school kid who's been bullied for years, in school, on the way to school, even inside my house, Having been told that she's worthless and asked, why would anyone ever love a kid like you? She starts to ask herself the same question. Why would anyone love me? She does the right thing, seeks help by telling some teachers, none of whom respond, none of whom help her. She decides at one point to try fighting back, which just gets her kicked out of her house. And at 16, she ends up sleeping on the street in Edgewood and quickly finding acceptance, but with some conditions, in a gang dry bones. A young wife, not getting any younger though, who desires nothing more than to be a mother and have a family, yet she endures multiple miscarriages and then the inability to even get pregnant in the first place. And every month, a drugstore pregnancy test delivers a knife straight to her heart, a heart that's full of love and maternal instinct. And she just she just wonders why God would make her this way, all this motherly love, and then give her a barren womb. Dry bones. Another young wife who has her first kid in October of one year, then loses her father in February of the next year, and while she's still reeling from that, finds out she's pregnant again in August of that same year. You know, we talk a lot about the pain of infertility, but sometimes even the blessing of children can lead us into the valley of dry bones. And so utterly overwhelmed with both grief and heavy new responsibilities, this young mom, she gets angry at God. And she says, hopeless doesn't even begin to explain the pain and frustration. And in spite of the blessing of two healthy babies, it was a struggle for me for a very long time. Dry bones. Another young wife gets her first teaching job, happily comes home one day with her first paycheck, only to have her husband arrive a few minutes later, tell her out of the blue he's leaving for another woman. He's already packed up and and removed most of his stuff and later her in-laws find her in the fetal position on the floor in the corner of her room. Dry bones. Here's one from my life right now, from one of my dear friends, a young man who meets and courts uh, and eventually marries a beautiful, sweet, smart, wonderful young lady. They're in love. They're the life of the party. 
They love Jesus and even go off to a foreign country to serve as missionaries, and those are good years. And then they come back to the States so she can finish her nursing degree, and he gets a great job. They plug into a great church, and they dream together about the next stop on this adventure for God. And, you know, as they get busier, they, you know, they think it's just a phase, but they begin to drift apart. And she gets a part-time job and kind of uh, initiates some, some unhealthy friendships there. And he misses some warning signs and others he sees, but, but doesn't make a big enough deal out of them. They try to communicate, but one day she, he gets a text and, and she says she's going to stay with her mom for a while. And then another day he walks in and sees her snuggling on their couch with another man. And, in a, you know, even then he tries to forgive and repair and redeem, but uh, she pulls further away. And in a last-ditch effort, he rents a limo and buys some flowers and writes some handwritten letters and plans a whole night and says, just come with me, let's talk, let's go, let's, let's try to, to redeem this thing. And she, said, she refuses, they yell and scream at each other, and she leaves this time for good. And he stands there with those flowers, all dressed up, nowhere to go. And this is a guy who grew up in the church and has served God all of his life. And now he's reluctantly signing divorce papers and he's 31 years old. Dry bones. And I just wonder if you've ever felt that way. Did you see any of your story in any of those stories? Or do you have another one that we could easily add to that list? And whether you're coming to church for the first time or you've grown up immersed in all this, the question is the same. Do you ever struggle with a feeling of hopelessness. Maybe you're battling it right now. And as we're discovering every week, this this struggle is not new. You know, the story, it's God's story, but it's also our story. It's your story and mine. And so if you're someone who's ever stood and looked at the dry bones of your life, you can probably identify with Ezekiel, who must have been wondering, how in the world did we ever get here? You know, he knew the story of his people. He knew about God's promise to Abraham to number his descendants like the stars and bless the whole world through them. He knew about the great king David and all the hope that he brought and how his throne was to be established forever. He knew about Solomon and kind of the glory days uh, of the building of the temple and, and all of it, which really wasn't even that long ago. And now it's all just gone. How did we ever get here? We're going to leave Ezekiel standing right there for a little while, and we're going, to, we're going to try to remind ourselves, rewind just a little bit, and see how we got here. You know, this last part of the story begins with Manasseh. <clears throat> he reigned as a king in Jerusalem for 55 years, which might lead us to think that's a nice, long, stable tenure. Maybe he was doing something right, but, but no. When the Bible sums up Manasseh's reign, it says, it begins with these words, he did evil. And then it goes on to describe his idolatry, which wasn't just his personal choice. He, he was setting up a system of idol worship all throughout the kingdom. He even had idols being worshipped, uh, praising altars to the starry host inside the temple, which was built for God. You know, the king who's supposed to be God's vessel and the, this leader, he's, he's just thumbing his nose at God and leading everybody else to do the same. And the Bible says, Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And that, that statement, if you've been following along in the story, is astounding. It's almost unimaginable. If you, you know, if you've been following along, you've seen the wickedness of some of these other peoples in this region. 
You know, the Assyrians, like, we, like Ben talked about last week, just who were just flat out just defiant and said, God, is, your God is nothing compared to us. And now God is looking at all these other nations and he's saying to his own chosen people, not even they are as wicked as you. It's, it's, it's amazing. So, question, have you ever just, have you ever just had enough? Have you ever just had it up to here? You know, parents with your kids, kids with your parents, roommates, coworkers. Have you ever gotten to that place in a relationship where you're just like, that's it, I am done, enough is enough? Doesn't this chapter just kind of feel like that's the point we're getting to with God and his people? Now, God, God is infinitely patient, but he has a responsibility to his children to break this cycle and to help them change course at some point. You know, it just feels like we're nearing the end of this ridiculous roller coaster of sin that we've been on with all these judges and all these kings, and Manasseh has led God's people to a new low, and as you might imagine, God is just fed up. So this is what he says. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. And as one reflecting back, Ezekiel will tell you, and the dry bones testify to this fact, God does what he says he's going to do. My first grade teacher was named Miss Sandra Smith, and as I recall, her favorite phrase to say to me was, boy, I will jerk a knot in you. <laughs> now, thankfully, she never did, but that's partly because I believe that she would. And I don't know if she actually would have done that, but I do know this. God does what he says he's going to do. He does not issue empty threats. And here's God saying to Jerusalem, and Judah, that he's going to let them suffer the full consequences of their sin and rebellion. And you just got, you got to remember, this is the God of love. One of the cool things about the story is that we get to see page one to the last page, Old Testament, New Testament, same God. Okay? And how can that be? How can the loving God say to these people, his own people, some of the things he says to them through the prophets in this chapter? How can that be? I think maybe it's just as simple as the concept of tough love. Have you ever had to give, to dole out some tough love to someone in your life? You know, as we mature, we come to understand more and more that love is not a wimpy, sappy, sentimental thing like it gets portrayed uh, sometimes. Love is not, and let's please all remember this with Valentine's Day coming up, love is not a feeling. Real love, God's kind of love, is something you choose to do, even when it's hard, even when it will hurt. Maybe it'll hurt you, maybe it'll hurt someone else, maybe both. But real love is strong. Real love is tough. I have a friend who loves her son as much as any of us love anybody else in our lives. And yet because of some of the choices this young man has made, he often finds himself in jail or out on the street and his mom, this godly woman, she's come to the place where she knows that often the right thing for her to do is to tell him no. He wants to get bailed out of jail. She has to say no. He calls at 2 a.m. saying, can I just come home? And she has to say no. And she does that 
Not because she doesn't love him, but precisely because she does love him. And that is a picture of God's love for his people. Love does not enable continual patterns of sin. Love does what's best for someone in the long term, even if it takes you through hell in the short term. Love sees the big picture and makes hard decisions. And so we're just sensing that with God and his people, it's come down to punishment time. They've rejected his prophets time and again. God gives them, even then, he gives them one more chance. He raises up this good king called Josiah. And and it just just goes away. It's short-lived. And when he dies, it's just right back to the same old junk. God's people are on the wrong road, and they're more determined than ever to stay on it. So after Josiah, the the story moves rather quickly through three more kings. Here's what the Bible says about them. Jehoahaz, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. Then Jehoiakim, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. Then Jehoiachin, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And that's not what you want on your tombstone. And one more note real quick about Jehoiachin. In 2 Kings 2.48, we read that his mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of El Nathan. And while it's not really relevant to anything, I just wanted you all to know that's my name in Spanish. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so anyway, these three kings, they, they continue this pattern of rebellion and idolatry. And here's how God responds. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. And then not long after that, during Jehoiachin's reign, in the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner as the Lord had declared. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men, all the skilled workers and artisans, total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. The people ignored the warning signs. We've all seen it coming. And the dry bones would testify that God does what he says he's going to do. So Jerusalem is being dismantled. It's just... The takeover has begun. We probably cannot overstate the importance of this moment for God's chosen people and God's chosen city where the temple is. It's, apparently, it's, it's not God's anymore. The blessing is removed. The Babylonians roll in and they just set up a whole new regime and this is a huge deal. I was trying to think about what this would feel like for us and it's not a perfect metaphor, but it would be something like if, if China came in and just rolled into Washington, D.C., and just took over. Started setting up shop, deporting people, changing all the laws, killing off all the traditions. Abe Lincoln, gone from his big marble chair. Welcome to the Mao Zedong Memorial in the National Mall. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to create ill will toward China or pr- be political or predict anything. Uh, China is just an example. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just suggesting that that's sort of what the moment like, might feel like for us. God's people, their whole national identity and their whole faith system and religious identity and their individual and family lives and their finances and homes were all crumbling at their feet. And here's the thing, though. Amazingly, even in that moment, God is not giving up on his people. Jerusalem is not totally destroyed. Babylon leaves Jerusalem with a puppet king named Zedekiah. And guess how the Bible describes him? 
oh, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And even so, during this time, the Lord, this is, this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Sometimes we get this picture of God like he's just flippant, like he's just easily angered, just sitting there waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us. But that, that just couldn't be further from the truth. It's, it's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says that even as God is executing this judgment against this stiff-necked, rebellious people, he's described by the prophets as weeping, as overflowing with tears watching his people being taken captive. You know that mom I was talking about, when her son calls at 2 a.m. and she has to tell him, no, you can't come home, what do you think she does when she hangs up the phone? I think she laughs like a movie villain and just says, oh, that was fun. No. You think she falls right back to sleep and just has happy dreams? No. You know what she does? She weeps. She weeps. She cries her eyes out. And of course that's what she does. Because that's what love does. Love suffers. And God is love. And God suffers with his children. So as people get taken captive, and if it seemed like we were at rock bottom, oh no, it could still get worse because God tells his people through the weeping prophet Jeremiah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is coming for anyone left in Jerusalem. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. It's just as if God is saying, you're getting what you've asked for. I have tried and tried and tried to show you compassion, but I guess you just don't want it. So God said, Nebuchadnezzar and his army are coming, and they come and they break down the walls and they set the city on fire and they burn the palace and the temple and all the houses and every important building. And everyone who resists is dead in the street. And everyone who surrenders is taken prisoner and deported. And the people of God, once thought to be the blessing, the vessel of blessing for the whole world, they're now refugees in a foreign land with no power. And the city of God, once bustling and beautiful, is reduced to a smoldering heap. All of it giving evidence to the fact that God does what he says he's going to do. So you ever felt hopeless? Because this, this looks pretty hopeless. wonder how many of you right now are thinking, man, Nate, uh, thanks so much for the sermon. It's a real pick-me-up. <laughs> And I know, I hear you, right? I mean, like, but what do you want me to do? This is the story. This is the story. And living in Babylon, people, God's people had to come to terms with that fact. This is, this is our story. You know, we can't live in denial anymore. You ever have to do that? Come to terms with your story? You know, there's some stuff that happened that you wish didn't happen, but it did. There's some things that are true that you wish weren't true, but they are. And it's, it's a part of you now. <clears throat> it's your story. And owning up to that is, is an important step. And so the story of God's chosen people wasn't supposed to end up like this, but this is their story. And there's a whole book in the Bible devoted exclusively to trying to process this tragedy. 
It's called Lamentations. This sounds like a, just a delightful read, right? It's, uh, it does what it says. It laments. It weeps. It cries. It looks full in the face of the realities of the story, and it just bawls at how terrible it is. But then at one point it says this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. That's, that's the kind of words we cling to in those really, really dark times. And, you know, that's what God's people did every day, many a morning, as they tried to manufacture some hope, even as they wallowed in the consequences of their great sin, exiles and refugees in a foreign land, homes and families destroyed. And Ezekiel was one of those. He was there among them. And God continued to speak to him, which says a lot about God, the fact that he is still on speaking terms with these people who have rejected, mocked, and cheated on him time and again. So on the off chance that they're going to listen this time, God speaks through his prophet Ezekiel, setting him in the middle of a valley full of dry bones. And Ezekiel tells it, he says, He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? And what a question. I, what, what, what would our answer be? Like, of course they can't. They're the very picture of death. That's the, that's the answer from our lower story perspective. But Ezekiel's answer is very telling. This, you know, this is a man of faith. He's there with God. And he seems to know and understand that God could do something. But he seems a little unconvinced of whether God would do something. And I, I just, I really get that. I feel like I understand exactly how Ezekiel feels as he musters up his answer. So God says, can these bones live? And he says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And even so, I'm not sure anything could have prepared him for what came next. He says, Then God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Lord. So even though he's talking, he's, he's saying, Listen, hear bones. He, he does it. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, Come, breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army, Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and give you, and you will, you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. So hear this today. Just when you thought all hope was lost, God said to his people, I'm not finished. When you don't have strength to hope anymore, God will put his spirit in you. When everything around you smells of death, God can make it come alive. What looks to you like skeletons on a battlefield, God can turn into a great army 
ready for battle. When you cannot manufacture a shred of hope because a door has been closed, God can take the lid off a grave. God says, I don't care how wrong your life has been or how much you've screwed up or how far you've run from me or how much you've ignored me. No matter the consequences of the mess that you've made, I've not written you off. And you can't mess anything up beyond what I can fix. No matter how broken you are, I can still make you whole. Even if you're a bunch of bones scattered across a valley, that cannot stop me from putting you back together again. I don't care what in you has gone cold or how dead you are on the inside. I can breathe into you and give you life. You are not too far gone. Even if you're a long way from where you started, exiled from innocence, you cannot outrun my love. I have not forgotten you, even if you've forgotten me. God says, are you hearing me? This is who I am. I know all about who you are. I know your whole story. I know how messed up it is. I know it's filled with pain. But listen to my story. I can make the dead come to life. I made you from dirt. I can certainly remake you from ashes. That's what God has always been saying to his people. And he does it. He wants us to hear that today. You know, he does that among us. Many of my friends in those stories I mentioned earlier, they've already experienced that part of the story, being put back together and redeemed and renewed by God. The girl who joined the gang, now she's in college on scholarship. She says, no matter what, God loves me and is walking with me day by day, guiding me down a path to something great. That young wife with the barren womb, and this doesn't happen for everyone, but she was blessed to be able to have both a son and a daughter. You know, that overwhelmed mom who, who didn't know if she can make it, she raised two great young adults, and I think her daddy would be proud. That devastated teacher curled up on the floor. She's a leader in this church and loves to tell her story to young people. And then for those who haven't really experienced that part yet, those who still find themselves in the valley of the dry bones, in that hopeless place, you know, even my friend who lost his marriage, even that mom whose son is out on the street, uh, they still have hope because you know why? Because they know that it's coming. They know death is not the end. It doesn't get the final word. Hopelessness is not their fate. Dry bones are not the end of the story. And their hope still trumps their despair every day at the end of the day because you know why? Because they know this fact. God does what he says he's going to do. And he says he's going to put us back together. God can make the dry bones come to life. And it happens all the time. It happens right here in this community. And every time we see that happen, we are witnesses to the fact that God does what he says he's going to do. He proved it to Ezekiel. He proved it to my friends. He proved it to somebody sitting on your row or maybe to you. And he ultimately proved it through Jesus. God told us he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants, and he did. He told us he was going to raise up a king from David's line who would rule forever, and he did. He promised to, to forgive us, to save us, to send a savior, to give us life that really means something, that has purpose, and he did. He's done all of that. And so by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, we can know today that even the dry bones can come to life. And we, we need that hope today. And we cling to that hope today. 
We need it as we look around all the situations and relationships in our life. We need it to lift us up out of our own tough situations. And so, just as a final word today, may the God who spoke to Ezekiel, may the God who raised Jesus from the dead, may the God who transforms lives all the time, may he breathe new life into you, and may he give you hope today. Let's pray. God, that's our prayer, that you would fill us with your spirit, your breath, your life, and that you would give us hope. Make us people of hope. Make us people of light and darkness. And thank you for the story. Thank you for even for the very hard parts, the tough love parts of the story. Thank you for loving us that way, as hard as it is sometimes. And thank you most of all for Jesus, through whom all these things happen and in whose name we pray. Amen.